Hey everybody, welcome back to the Goody Reader Radio Show. My name is Michael and I'm joined today by one Jeremy Greenfield, one of the premier luminaries in the digital publishing world who is also affiliated with Digital Book World. Jeremy, how's it going? It's going fine. I don't know if premier luminaries is, is exactly accurate, but I'm so flattered, Michael. <laughs> My pleasure. So I guess one of the things I want to talk about first is one of the things that we had uh, talked about extensively you know, over the course of the last few years, and it's been uh, very prevalent uh, in terms of uh, self-publishing and, and independent authors. And uh, recently I wrote a post talking about how we need to simplify the quantitative process of of uh, the process of self-publishing. So um, there's so many terms being batted around these days that I feel that it confuses the general audience, people that don't know a lot about self-publishing, people that don't know uh, really about anything. They they maybe buy eBooks occasionally, uh, maybe they've heard of eBooks, they've heard of audiobooks, but maybe they haven't bought any and they just want to learn more. And when you have terminology like hybrid uh, author, uh, self-pub, trade author, and uh, you know a hundred other terms, I feel that it overwhelms and confuses the general audience. So uh, my thesis idea was to simplify it. You're a writer or you're a professional author. Uh, anybody that does not derive their income from writing is, is they're a professional author. So if you could live off of the fruits of your labor and not have to work a waitress job or have to worry, work as a, as, as a primary job to support yourself, you're a professional. Anybody who it does work a second job or you know does not live off of their uh, prose or their books, they're just writers. And that's my sort of thesis statement to simplify the idea and it's mainly for journalists such as myself that when you use so many uh, extensive terms I feel that the public is just they don't understand what it means whereas if you call someone a writer you call someone a professional author people automatically know what that means a writer writes a professional author makes money by writing so I've received uh, yet another firestorm from my ideas. Jeremy, what are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I actually I disagree with you here on this, Michael. <clears throat> I think when it comes to creative pursuits, uh, it, it's really subjective as to whether someone is, you know, at the level of a master or a professional or not. Now, the word professional comes loaded with the idea that uh, someone makes money off of off of their writing, but I think there are many, or off of their pursuit, but I think there are many, many, many levels of that. And I don't think that, uh, you know, the difference between, say, an, an author in your piece and, and a writer, uh, you know, I don't think it's important that the reader necessarily know, the casual reader necessarily know whether, um, you know, they're a professional or not. So I think we should allow authors to self-identify as whatever they want to be. This is a, a creative pursuit. And also, you know, who's to say how money is made and how someone is professional at something? So for instance, you know, maybe I didn't sell many books, but maybe it got me a job. Maybe it got me a speaking engagement. Um, uh, and also, you know, so I, I would say for, the, for the, the reader who wants to know more, needs to know more, who isn't a casual reader, I think it should just be explained uh, if we're writing about authors, you know, what kind of author they are using much more detailed uh, sentences than just, you know, author or writer. And for the casual reader, I don't think they need to have those distinctions pointed out to them. And I think we would just, you know, simplify it as that the person is simply an author of books. 
they're self-published, and you know their their books are available here, and and the reader you know can decide for themselves what that means. Well, various author guilds and, and writing organizations often have strict requirements. It's only really been in the last few years that um, you know the the sci-fi readers of America have started offering you know self pubs um, and many other writing organizations. That the Canadian uh, Union of Authors has been another one that's you know implementing policies right now to get uh, self pub acceptance and to iron out what what, what requirements do they have. Um, to do it. So one question I have is that if these writing organizations have strict requirements, what do you think that that translates to, or is it translatable to the industry at large? Do you, do you think that there should be some requirements to quantify authors? Yeah, I think that that, that is the, the exception to everything I just said, which is that um, you know, professional organizations have mission statements and they have members. The mission statements are, you know, in part developed by the members, but also in part historical. Um, so I think a professional organization like, say, the Authors Guild or the Romance Writers of America or, or the many others out there, you know, have a right. In fact, they have a duty to protect the interests of their members. And part of protecting the interests of their members is to make sure that the, the organization's current members, um, you know, continue to be served in the future. So they would not let anyone or enter the organization because, uh, you know, let's say, for instance, your organization has 100 members, and those 100 members are, you know, authors who are published by, uh, you know, large publishers, and they have certain concerns, like they're concerned about uh, ebook prices and royalty rates and uh, you know, certain other things that are of concern to that group. They may not want indie authors, for instance, to join the organization because the indie authors may have different concerns. They may be concerned with um, you know, Kindle Direct publishing contracts, which those other authors, they may not be concerned with it. So they, the, the organization, I think, has a duty to uh, protect the interests, the future interests of its current members. And I think that it, in part, is making sure that um, you know, the that the that the organization will have a membership um, that continues to have similar concerns as to the membership it, it currently has. Now, if conditions in an environment change, like the environment that the Authors Guild operates in, you know, I think that it would have a duty to adapt to those conditions. So, uh, but the conditions would then therefore change for the members of the organization too. And again, you know, the constant is the members here. Um, so I think that those organizations can make whatever distinctions they think are necessary for their membership, but when it comes to the way people self-identify or the way that we identify them as journalists, um, I don't think for authors that we need to create different jargon for those kinds of authors. Um, I think we should just call them all authors and then be more specific as necessary. All right. Well, if you want to weigh in on this discussion, we will have two links to Jeremy and myself's post uh, on our respective websites. So if you have a comment or if you want to uh, have your own opinion heard on anything that we've talked about, uh, feel free to comment and all comments are publicly accepted. So um, yeah do that. Now, we've been talking a lot about self-published authors and Harlequin is one publisher that is actually uh, feeling uh, the pinch of uh, a lot of self-published romance and erotica books, uh, you know, uh, flooding the market. And uh, they're a company that it, it, that's feeling it. And you actually wrote a very interesting piece about that recently. Yeah, so Harlequin came out with its annual report recently. And um, for the fourth year in a row, the company uh, has 
become smaller. Uh, it generated um, about $400 million in revenue last year, and that's down from almost $500 million five years ago. Uh, so the company has become smaller, and it's been pretty consistent, uh, sort of slow decline to that size. So I talked to the CEO of the company, uh, Craig Swinwood, about why this was, and then they wrote some of, about it in the report. And basically there are two uh, major struggles that the company is having to deal with right now. Uh, one is ebook price or book pricing in general. So you know, online books, uh, booksellers are becoming more prominent, uh, and a lot of Harlequin's books are what are known as mass market paperbacks. So they're sort of, you know, lower quality produced books in terms of the paper they're printed on and their soft cover books, um, and they're priced a certain way. They're they're less expensive than other books, but big online retailers will often take, you know, new hardcover books and discount them pretty significantly to to gain market share. And Swinwood says that this makes the mass market paperback books uh, sort of uh, less. Uh, less good by comparison for readers. Um, mass market paperbacks are also under attack from, you know, ebooks. Basically, their ebooks are very inexpensive too. And um, you know, if you can buy the ebook for you know three dollars, uh, it's a lot cheaper than the mass market paperback. And you know, romance readers took to digital very, very early uh, compared to other readers. So Harlequin actually did do fairly well digitally early on, but it's really been eating into its mass market business uh, very significantly over the past several years, and that's why the company has gone down uh, in revenue. And I think there's another thing that Harlequin's been dealing with, which is that. Um, you know, a lot of its authors uh, or potential authors have decided to go and publish themselves, just as you said. And what that means is that not only are there more romance titles out there as ebooks to com to compete with that are no longer being sold by Harlequin, but are being sold by you know self-published authors. Um, but Harlequin now has to compete for authors as well. You know, it, it's a little bit harder now for the company to uh, sign someone to a contract because that person likely knows that they can do it themselves and maybe they'll make more money that way or maybe they'll be able to fulfill their other goals more adequately that way. So uh, the company is, is being sort of challenged, uh, but Swinwood was very optimistic uh, that 2014 would be the year that things would stabilize for Harlequin. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong, but one of Harlequin's sub, like digital programs, is it Karina Press? That's right. Karina Press was one of the very first uh, digital first imprints at a major publisher. I remember when they first launched that, and this has been going on for years, and it was actually funny because the first year I went to BEA, I was on a flight and... I was like surrounded by a bevy of beauties and they were all writing for Karina. And so they schooled me really early on on what Karina was all about and how Harlequin was really backing them and how they, you know, were able to go from self-publishing and actually belong to sort of an imprint of Harlequin and get some of that promotion behind them. And they were all really happy with, you know, the level of uh, book sales that they got self-publishing versus publishing with Harlequin. So the question is, what can Harlequin do to not necessarily regain its market share, but seem like a platform that will that can attract, you know, up and coming writers? Uh, you know, I think that that Harlequin has the same native advantages that a lot of other um, large publishing companies do. It has 
uh, a talented editorial staff that has spent many years uh, not only uh, picking winners in terms of the kinds of authors they want to um, bring into the fold, but also making that content better and packaging it well. Um, and so Harlequin has practiced at that and that there is a skill and an art to that. Um, second, print distribution. Um, you know, Harlequin sells a lot of books in bookstores and supermarkets and Walmart, and self-published authors have not had a ton of success breaking into the print distribution market. Now, print uh, in bricks-and-mortar bookstores is no longer the number one way that people buy and, and find and read books. Um, but it is a very, very, very significant sales channel, and print overall um, is the number one way that people read and buy books these days, uh, certainly by units, but also, much more importantly, by revenue. Um, and uh, Harlequin also has a marketing department. Um, you know, even indie authors who are doing mostly everything themselves will uh, do things to help themselves uh, with marketing. They'll hire publicists or they'll use uh, tools. Some of them are, are free, but some of them are paid to help them uh, create their, their own platforms on the Internet. And Harlequin has a department that theoretically uh, does these things. And lastly, I would say Harlequin has scale. Um, it's a very large company. It has uh, accountants and lawyers and uh, other business strategists who are paid for through uh, many, many, many books and authors and rights that are being exploited and sold. Uh, and those services are all services that authors want and need ultimately if they are going to be very successful. Uh, and Harlequin can you know, sort of amortize the value of those services across many authors and many, many projects. Um, so scale is certainly something that is a big advantage for Harlequin. So I would say pressing those advantages. You know, we talked to about 9,000 authors through a survey over the past few months uh, at the end of last year to find out what they, what they wanted and needed and how satisfied they were with the services they were getting. And authors in general are sort of, they're, they're sort of like cable customers, um, you know, or, or, or satellite dish customers. Uh, nobody really likes the service they're getting no matter who they're getting it from. They always have complaints. Um, so I think that publishers and self-publishing service providers alike, there's a big opportunity to, for authors who are on the fence or authors who are considering one way or the other to woo those authors, to retain those authors, and to, to gain new ones. So, I mean, one more kind of thing I want to say about this before we wrap this up. Um, you know, Harlequin has been one of those companies that have been making romance books forever. I mean, I know everybody growing up, their mom read Harlequin books, you know, some of the racy stuff, some of the more, you know, historical romance and things like that. There was there was something for everybody, but it seems to have tapered off over the years, mainly because of all the core writers that used to do publish through Harlequin just have different options now, you know, uh, mm -hmm. Kindle Direct Publishing, Smashwords and things like this. But at the same time, if I was an aspiring romance author, I would rather publish through an established company rather than having to DIY the whole thing myself because the, the one thing about self-publishing is that finishing the book is just the first step. You know, you have to promote it, you have to, you know, uh, do an editor, cover artist, you have to become your own PR machine. I mean, there's a lot of things that are involved. I would much rather just focus on writing and, and have Harlequin promote the book for me. I mean, that would be the path of least resistance, although... You know, being a publisher, they certainly don't accept everyone. And I know that Karina Press definitely has um, 
their terms in terms of like royalties and things are not the industry leaders. So I, I just don't think that that in itself is attracting uh, the talent necessary. Um, one thing I wanted to kind of talk about was um, Kobo and how they are in trouble. And we're seeing the same sort of trouble Kobo is in as the same sort of trouble Barnes Noble and Sony is in. And the the crux of this argument, I guess, or the, the statement is that uh, Kobo is being forced by the Canadian government to renegotiate their publishing contracts with uh, the big five uh, within 40 days and if they don't renegotiate uh, their terms within 40 days the Canadian government will not allow Kobo to sell ebooks from those publishers so like a Simon & Schuster, a HarperCollins, a Macmillan if they can't iron those out in 40 days they won't be able to sell any of those ebooks from that, those publishers in Canada and this is primarily due to, um, you know, we've been following this very closely with the, the whole Justice Department uh, debacle uh, versus Apple and the major publishers that have really been going on for years. And it was basically the abolishment of the agency model. Now, Jeremy, what exactly is the agency model? So the agency model is uh, a model of selling ebooks uh, wherein the publisher or supplier of the ebook determines the price paid by the consumer and the proceeds are split between the retailer and the publisher and until recently uh, the, some of the largest publishers in the world were selling their ebooks under this model uh, with all of the ebook retailers okay so what Kobo is saying is that if they're forced to go and not a, if they're, they're basically forced to abandon the agency model, they're saying that it's going to destroy our business because they'll have to basically go to the wholesale model, which was what they initially did out of the gates when they first started, and they lost millions of dollars. Uh, they said in their own words that giving up the agency model will be devastating for the company and will relegate them to be an ineffective competitor. And they cited the fact that once the agency model was abolished basically in the states and everyone moving to agency light or again to the wholesale model that you saw at the, about the same time Barnes & Noble's market share diminished, uh, Sony abandoned the US market altogether, uh, Kobo had an American presence but they closed down their Chicago office and basically abandoned the states altogether so if you live in the States and you want to buy ebooks from Kobo, you're actually using the Canadian site, not the U.S. site. So do you think that there's something to this? Do you think that the elimination of the agency model in the States is directly responsible for uh, Sony, Barnes & Noble, and Kobo? Basically all, you know, if all abandoning that market, if not having record low uh, ebook sales. I think the answer is complicated. I think <clears throat> no and yes. Hmm. You know, you know, there are other retailers that sell ebooks. Uh, Apple sells ebooks. Amazon sells ebooks. Uh, Google sells ebooks. And um, you know, these Amazon is a good example of an ebook retailer that the uh, the ab abolishing the agency model didn't 
hasn't killed. In fact, Amazon, by all indications, seems to be gaining market share uh, over the past uh, year or so. Um, so I think that, you know, on the one hand, you can say, well, the agency model doesn't kill every ebook retailer. Um, but but then you could also very rightfully point out that uh, Amazon seems to have been the beneficiary of the change in the rules, um, that it has gained market share, it has gained prominence, uh, while Nook is, uh, is, its losing of money has accelerated. Um, and I think that it's a very, very clear that, um, that this is the case. And the, the reason is that uh, Amazon is, is leading the pack most of the time, not all the time, in discounting e-books uh, pretty significantly to generate sales, often selling the e-books at a loss uh, to consumers. Now, uh, Amazon uh, seems to be claiming that its e-book business is profitable and that you know, it makes money on you know, the, the front list titles that are deeply discounted are uh, you know, they're, they're just lost leaders and that Amazon makes money on backlist titles that it sells and on self-published titles that it sells, which it, it generates uh, anywhere between 30 and, and 70% of the commission of, um, and, and other services around books and, and e-books. Um, but, you know, clearly it's hurt the business of other companies. So Amazon can make money doing things other than selling books. It has a web services business. It has a, uh, a sort of on-demand movie and an audio business tied in with uh, its prime discount delivery business. And uh, it, it sells lots of things. It sells devices. Um, it sells many, 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 many other goods around the world. Um, so it doesn't necessarily need to make money off of ebooks to be a profitable company and a going concern. Kobo does need to make money off of ebooks. So I think Kobo does have an argument there. If I were the, uh, you know, a critic of Kobo, I would say, well, get creative. Uh, bring something to the customer that, uh, that Amazon can't bring or won't bring or doesn't bring. Uh, do it better than they're doing it. You know, you're not the first business to face tough competition. Um, on the other hand, uh, I think we've seen in the U.S. that you know, companies uh, haven't been able to do that so effectively over the past year or so uh, against Amazon. So I think Kobo has a decent argument here uh, based on how it, it played out practically. The big problem is that the wholesale model is cheaper for consumers right now. And the uh, Justice Department in the U.S. and other regulatory uh, bodies around the world are really interested in protecting consumers. And I think protecting consumers in many cases translates to making sure they pay the lowest prices and to, to having a competitive market that generates that. I mean, in this case, it's a non-competitive market or a less competitive market that seems to be generating lower prices. So it's a really complex question, and I don't know if there's a right answer to it. What do you think? Well, what I know is that Kobo, the only play that they have is to say that the Justice Department settlement was only applicable to the states. There was no big thing in Canada about uh, the agency model. There was no big court cases. There, there was nothing done in Canada to the level of the states if there was anything done in Canada at all. So what Kobo is claiming is that the DOJ settlement terms have no jurisdiction in Canada, which is is true because it's it's a United States deal. And you know when when ebook customers got uh, credits back from books that they purchased under the agency model, it was just in the states. It did not affect Canadian customers at all. So Kobo's only play is to say that. 
the DOJ settlement has no jurisdiction in Canada, which means that they'll be able to abide by the agency model in Canada until such time as that the Canadian government does its own investigation and does its own uh, court drama case. And, you know, this plays out internationally. You know, the DOJ was really only the state. So should Kobo and other booksellers be forced to give up the agency model in countries like the UK? in France, in Germany, in Spain, in uh, South America, in South Africa, in Japan, in China, in Russia, you know, like, where does this stop, you know, in terms of the agency model? What I have seen is that once the agency model was abandoned, that is when the ebook resellers have collapsed. Kobo makes its money from book sales. Amazon, they have alternative revenue streams. Apple, alternative revenue streams. Google, alternative revenue streams. A Barnes Noble Nook division makes money from selling digital content devices. Kobo, same thing. And so you look at the companies that are whose bread and butter is selling ebooks and selling hardware, they're all suffering. That's uh, Case in point with Sony, you know, they they basically shuttered their entire reader store and stopped selling devices mainly because they just can't compete in North America anymore. And I, I really do think that the abandonment of the agency model is is the worst thing to have ever happened for book sales. It, it basically is making Amazon the de facto winner of market control in North America. And I don't really necessarily think that's a good thing. They basically are outpricing their competition by offering things as cheaply as possible until there's no competition left. Then they could just raise prices because there's no one. And then they could raise prices afterwards because there's no one left to compete with. See, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think that's in Amazon's DNA to corner the market, and then raise prices. What I think is more likely is Amazon corners the market and then squeezes suppliers. And in this case, the suppliers are publishers and authors. Uh, so I think, and we're already seeing that a little bit. Yeah. You know, Amazon you know, lowered the royalty rates that it was paying uh, content or right, rights holders on its audiobook uh, exchange, ACX. Um, which supplies a lot of uh, audiobooks to Audible. Yep, yep, so, totally. So, I mean, I think that, that is maybe a tentative step toward finding ways to squeeze authors directly, but it certainly has squeezed publishers. You know, uh, we've heard a lot of stories from publishers about uh, Amazon's contract negotiations and how difficult those contract negotiations have been and how uh, the company has, has sort of gotten tougher and tougher. As They're it, ruthless uh, now. Well, as its share in the market has increased, so so I don't think that there's an end game here where consumers are going to have to pay higher prices. I think that the, the the parties that need to worry about what happens when Amazon gets even more dominant in the market are the suppliers. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of difficult to see how this all plays out, but I, you know, we know that it, from reading uh, the Amazon, the Everything Store. Uh, from the author that you've actually interviewed, it really gave Amazon negotiate, no, negotiation tactics. Uh, he really spelled them out in black and white exactly what they do, and they do exactly what you said they did. They, you know, they try to squeeze. They're ruthless. You know, they they know that they're the top dogs, and they're not afraid to really negotiate the best contracts possible. So I see that more as a, a likelihood. But yeah, I mean, ACX royalties are lower. Uh, they've killed bounty programs. I mean, they, they basically dominate the audio book market right now. And if you really want to see what Amazon's end game is for ebooks, just look at what they're really doing with audiobooks right now. 
Well, you know, the thing with ebooks and authors and what's happening with the audiobook market is I'm not sure there's a direct analogy there because there really isn't too much of an alternative to ACX. Um, whereas with Nook, you know, and, and Apple iBooks and um, Kobo and some of the others, there, there is an alternative to Amazon still. Uh, and indie authors are, um, you know, they, they are a very tight-knit community. They talk to each other, they share information, and they also are very emotional. Um, and, and you know, as we saw with your with your earlier post about you know the terms author and writer, so I think that if Amazon did change its terms in a significant way for for indie authors and ebooks, I, I think that those authors would consider strongly abandoning Amazon, even if only temporarily, to go to some of the competition. Um, so you know, I wonder how it's all going to play out. But you know, let's say in a year or two, if Nook doesn't exist. Uh, and the only real significant competitor to Amazon in the U.S. is, is Apple. You know, will Amazon roll the dice and start putting the squeeze on its author suppliers? I mean, it's giving them a 70% royalty right now on eBooks published uh, that are priced at 2.99 or above. Um, you know, that's that's a number that's got some wiggle room. Uh, what if the royalty went down to 65% or 60 or 55%? Uh, you know, would authors basically be in an uproar and pull their books from Amazon, even <laughs> though Amazon was selling 85% of their titles? Probably not. 85% of their sales? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. But I think the Amazon move isn't to squeeze customers, it's to squeeze suppliers. So if you're the Department of Justice, and on the one hand, you know, you've got these laws to uphold about uh, preventing monopolies and, can, and making you know, competition in the business marketplace vibrant, but on the other hand, you've got this mandate about protecting consumers, uh, what do you do? Uh, you know, consumer prices uh, are low. They're staying low. But on the other hand, you know, control of the marketplace it's theoretically being ceded to one player. Um, I, don't, I don't know if that's going to happen necessarily, but what if it does? What do you do if you're the DOJ? Yeah, because the whole process was they they don't want a single company to have a monopoly. You know, they want to they want to have as many different players coming to the table as possible, which was really the spirit behind agency is a a level playing field of of ebook prices that were the same across all platforms. It stimulates competition, it gets more people participating in the ecosystem, and it allows, you know, it doesn't allow one company to have an overwhelming monopoly of an entire industry. Um, one thing I you, you mentioned uh, many times, Barnes & Noble, recently in one of their SEC filings, they've said that they've reduced Nook funding by almost 74%. Yeah, uh, and that's not a surprise, especially if you look at the, I mean, it all fits together if you look at the macro numbers for the company. Uh, it's making a lot less money, but it's also losing less money. So if you make a lot less money and you lose less money, that means you're spending less money. Um, so it, the money losing equation for Nook is partially in device sales, you know, because it costs money to develop, uh, manufacture, assemble, uh, distribute, store, sell the devices. Um, and, and it's really unclear if the devices sales themselves are profitable. But based on what we know about the tablet market, they're probably not all that profitable. Um, and then you've got the uh, ebook sales, which we are coming to learn uh, have become unprofitable uh, after the wholesale model was implemented for some of the largest publishers that sell some of the most books. Um, but Another part of the money losing equation is overhead, uh, you know, salary of staff. And Marzanola has cut a lot of staff from the Nook division. Um, you know, money being spent on R&D. You know, Barnes & Noble didn't come out with the next generation tablet product this past year. 
Um, so that is money that the, the company hasn't spent. Um, so it, it all makes sense. Uh, I don't think it bodes well if you work for Barnes & Noble, Nook, and if, or if you are hoping that Nook is poised to make a comeback. Um, I suppose that readers could uh, decide to turn the tide against Amazon and Apple and the others and go out and buy more Nook devices and buy more of their eBooks from Barnes & Noble for some reason. But um, I don't think anything like that's happened in the history of business, so I think it would be a shock. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, you know, they, they fired a lot of people. I think in total about 190 people were let go. They have about 500 people left. And, uh, yeah, I mean, they're they're a company in flux. I, I just really hope that... Uh, they they can pull themselves together. I mean, they I think they they have the money. They have like the willpower to, to at least to try to persevere for another uh, you know full full year you know a quarterly year. So uh, we'll see how things go. Uh, before we wrap it up for today, Jeremy, do you have any other things that you wanted to mention? Well, you know, for those of you out there who are listening who are involved in ebook production. Uh, or um, our indie authors who want to learn more about uh, ebook production for their own edification. Uh, Digital Book World has a series of webcasts that begins tomorrow on ebook production. Tomorrow is focused on typography, ebook typography. And if you uh, read a lot of ebooks, as I do, and I know you do, Michael, yeah. uh, read some ebooks that you are you should be interested in in ebook the cutting edge of ebook typography. Um, next week we will have a, a webcast. On um, uh, I don't have it in front of me right now, <laughs> but it is another ebook production webcast, another best practices webcast, and then we're going to have one the following week as well. So go to digitalbookworld.com and click on the webcast button to see uh, what we have on offer. And that's our, our most exciting thing going on right now. And I have to tell you, a lot of people are going to be attending this one tomorrow. We're very excited. Awesome. Uh, for us, I guess we have uh, a um, um, a very riveting post about Hugh Howie going up soon and uh, mainly about how he is transcending being a writer and and metamorphosizing into being a poster boy of self-publishing and almost becoming uh, an evangelist now against self-publishing versus the traditional publishing market and ruffling a lot of feathers along the way. So if you want to have a different perspective from Hugh Howie, uh, you want to pay attention to Goody Reader at some point today when that goes up. I assure you we will be talking about him in a light that you have probably have not heard about before. So stay tuned for that. Uh, Jeremy, thanks for uh, joining me today today. Thanks for having me, Michael. Pleasure as always. All right, everybody. You've been listening to the Goody Reader Radio Show, and everybody take care.